And I want to just mention here today as we enter into Matthew chapter 5, we're beginning the Sermon on the Mount, which will go from chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7. And it's here that we're going to learn how true citizens of the kingdom are called to both think and to act. Today we are going to learn from Christ's message on the Sermon on the Mount just what citizens of his kingdom are going to look like. That's what we're going to be learning here today. Now I want to begin by talking about some introductory issues regarding the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, which is often called the Mount of Beatitudes. And I want to look at three different interpretive issues that I think are critical for us to consider. First of all, I want to mention that the Sermon on the Mount is often called the Mount of Beatitudes. The term beatitude comes from the Latin term beatus, which means blessed. And so Jesus will say over and over, blessed are you, blessed are you. And so that's where it comes from. But originally, Matthew recorded it with the term makarios in Greek. And I want you to know that there's a debate as to how to render makarios. Some scholars today will say that it simply means to be happy. And, and good scholars will build off of that and qualify that. But I want you to realize that happy is not the idea. Because I want you to realize that the idea of happy has this idea, well, it's about being in a good mood. The idea that somehow you're blessed if you got up and your eggs were just right and your to- toast wasn't singed and the, the birds were chirping and the sun was out, you're in a good mood, you're happy. No, it's not about that symptom, it's about status. Being blessed is about having a status in which God's favor is upon you. And because God's favor is upon you, you are no longer objects of his wrath. And because you're no longer objects of his wrath, one day you will enjoy the glorious kingdom that he brings and the resurrection life. And therefore, you will be happy forevermore. And so what I want you to see then is blessed is about having the status of God's favor not simply being in a good mood. Bob has often said that it's not symptomatic being blessed, it's about status. And that's exactly right. That's what we're going to learn here in the Sermon on the Mount. The second thing I want you to consider is that the descriptions in the Sermon on the Mount of righteous living are not something we can do on our own, but they are descriptions of what we will do by God's gracious power. Um, Adam Oline a friend of ours here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, he said to me some months ago, he said, you know, Eric, there's two ways of getting the Sermon on the Mount wrong. The first way is to think that somehow we as unbelievers will simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do all the things that Christ commands in the Sermon on the Mount and justify ourselves before God. In fact, there are many uh, liberal theologians and pastors in the 20th and now into the 21st century that would teach their unsuspecting and unbelieving congregations just that. Hey, they would say, take the Sermon on the Mount, start doing those things, and we'll create a utopia here and now. That is not what Jesus means as he is teaching us the Sermon on the Mount. The second way to get the Sermon on the Mount wrong is to think that we as believers don't have to do these things, as if Christ's commands are superfluous and something that we don't need to do. No, what we're going to learn is we will do these things all by God's gracious power. That's the idea that, yes, what Christ says is blessed and the things he calls us to do in attitude and action are those things which typify the believer. The third thing I want to mention is I don't want you to think that the promises Christ gives in the Sermon on the Mount are those things that we are to experience here and now. So don't think that the blessing, again, is here and now where you're going to have your best life never to be ill, never to have any troubles, 
No, we're promised trials and tribulations here. And so we have to know that the promises of the Beatitudes are eschatological and belong to every believer in Christ. Now, what do I mean by eschatological? Meaning they pertain to the coming kingdom. When you and I actually experience the blessings are going to be when you and I are in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, followed by the eternal states, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Now, I want to also turn, we're going to be covering the first 10 verses today, and let me talk a little bit about these. We're going to see in the first two verses of Matthew 5, the setting that Jesus is going to go up on a mountain. And therefore, he is like God of the Old Testament who met the people at Sinai up on a mountain. So Jesus is God, meeting the people once again on the mountain. But we're also going to come to an inclusio. And no, I did not misspell inclusion. I meant inclusio. And inclusio is a literary device where the writer will show a refrain at the beginning, at the end of the segment that he wants you to focus on. Okay, so let me show you the first segment or bracket of the inclusio. It's where Jesus says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, then the bottom part of the bracket of the inclusio is 5.10, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does everyone see that refrain, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? The other thing I want to point out is I want you to look at this verb. Notice the is. That's a present tense verb. And the whole section is bracketed by that present tense verb. And it's accentuating that that kingdom belongs to those who belong to Christ. We are possessors. We have the status of being kingdom dwellers. Well, when you get to verse 4, all the way to verse 9, in between these brackets, all the verbs are in the future tense, showing us that indeed the promises are for the future kingdom. Brothers and sisters, what we learn in this pericope is what kingdom citizens look like and how they act and how they think. Now, there's one more item. I'm sorry to go on so long in an introduction, but there's one more item I don't want you to miss about how Matthew is portraying Jesus as the faithful son Israel never was. And it culminates, I believe, here in Matthew chapter 5. Remember, I've showed you numerous comparisons and contrasts that I think Matthew intends between Israel and Jesus. The first one is remember Israel was brought to Egypt in order to preserve them from a famine. You can read about that in the latter chapters of the book of Genesis. What happens if Israel dies because of the famine that came? The messianic promises are done. That's why they were brought into Egypt. In fact, Bob DeWay was talking about that very thing in Sunday school today. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Notice in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew portrays Jesus as going down to Egypt to be spared the wrath of Herod. Why? Because if Jesus dies at the hands of Herod, the messianic promises are over. So in both cases, the son is protected by going into Egypt. Next one. Israel had themselves a baptism. That's the exodus that they had through the Red Sea. That's how they end up leaving Egypt. What's very interesting is the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that their exiting through the Red Sea was a type of baptism. Well, lo and behold, in Matthew chapter 3, Matthew depicts Jesus as being baptized as well, identifying with the people of God. Now, the the comparison continues 
Notice after the exodus and the baptism of Israel through the Red Sea, where did they go? They went to the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years where they failed because of unbelief. Sure enough, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He succeeds where Israel failed in 40 years. Why? He's the faithful son. He's the faithful son that Israel never was. Now, it culminates here in chapter 5 because in the wilderness, where did Israel meet God? They went to the mountain. They went to Mount Sinai. Lo and behold, Matthew chapter 5, where does Jesus go? He goes to the mountain. And he meets the people once again. So, From this, I think we can conclude three things. Number one, Jesus is certainly being depicted by Matthew as the prophet that Moses had foretold. Moses, look on the screen. He was the mediator of the old covenant that meant God in the mountain. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant who is God himself at the mountain. Number two, certainly this is implied. Jesus is the faithful son. Israel was not. And number three, Jesus is God who meets his people once again on the mountain. And so that's where we pick it up here. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Jesus, who is God, is meeting his people once again on the mountain. And Matthew records this. He says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to notice here in this first underline that Jesus went up on the mountain. And in reality, he probably went to the hills that were surrounding Galilee. But nonetheless, Matthew records it as a singular definite article and singular noun, the mountain. And Matthew is doing that deliberately to show us a connection back to God meeting the people at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. So yes, he met them. Up on the mountain. Now, how many in here have ever been to Israel? I know many of you have. If you've been to Israel, you know that the traditional site for the Mount of Beatitudes is on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And when you're there, it's very impressive because there is a large hill or mountain. The term horos can mean either. And yes, there's a, a big like plateau where you could have hundreds of people hear Jesus speak because the acoustics are so good. Now, whether it happened at that traditional site, It doesn't matter because there are many sites like that around Galilee. So yes, Jesus really did go up on a mountain and he spoke to the people of God. Now, I want you to notice here that the audience of Jesus Christ is not unbelievers, but rather his disciples. In fact, the term for disciples there, mathetes, that's the first usage of it by Matthew. But here, it refers to a wider group than the 12. It's a much larger group of disciples that are following Christ. And it's very important that I think we see this audience as being believers or disciples because Jesus, in giving the Beatitudes, is not simply proclaiming to unbelievers how they can be justified before God. We have to understand that. Think of it this way. If when Jesus preaches the gospel or the apostles preach the gospel, yes, that is about justification. But in the Beatitudes, it's more about transformation. What is it that true believers will look like? How is it that true believers will think and act? And so that's very important. This isn't about pull yourself up by your bootstraps and earn your salvation. It's about those who have already believed and how they are to act if they're to be followers of Christ. Now, I want you to notice here we're coming to the first of the 
eight Beatitudes are going to be covering this morning. I want to mention that the first two Beatitudes are linked or connected to Isaiah 61. Notice the first one is in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what we have to do to understand this Beatitude is we have to define who are the poor in spirit in the underline. Well, the way I would define that is the poor in spirit are not those who are poor financially, but those who are broken and contrite, who have humbled themselves before God and realize their need for a savior, the need for atonement and the forgiveness of sins. And so it is the opposite of those who are haughty and arrogant, thinking that they stand self-justified before God. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 61. Please turn your Bibles there. Isaiah 61, we're going to look at verse 1. And as you turn to Isaiah 61, verse 1, keep a little piece of paper there, something to mark it, because we'll come back to it in the very next slide as well. Now, as you're turning to Isaiah 61, 1, you'll be interested to note that Isaiah 61 was a passage that Jesus applied to himself at his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4. That is Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And so we know Isaiah 61, 1 through 2 is messianic. You know, you know how we know that? Because Jesus said it is. <laughs> Bob's often told us, hey, if Jesus gives you the interpretation, it's the right one. So that's what we have here. Isaiah 61, 1. Notice what it says. The Messiah, this is all about him. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the, the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Now, some of your versions will say afflicted, but poor is a good rendering as well. And I want you to see here in this definition that synonymous with the poor in spirit are those who are brokenhearted those who have come to an end of themselves and realize that they need a savior. That's what Jesus is driving at. Now, keep a little marker there in Isaiah 61, but turn ahead five chapters to Isaiah 66, verse 2. I'm going to show you that these Beatitudes are all rooted in the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, 2, and this passage is going to help us better understand just what poor in spirit means. Isaiah 66, verse 2. Please turn your Bibles there. Now, notice here in Isaiah 66, 2, this is all about the promise of those who will inherit Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. Notice the Lord says, For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now, let's let's stop there for just a moment. He's going to explain those who have his favor, those who will enter into the kingdom. He says, to this one I will look, to him who was humble, literally poor, the term is anavim, to poor, the contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. So I want you to notice that synonymous with being poor here is being contrite of spirit, those who are broken. Now, that means then being poor in spirit is independent of your financial status. And it is true, however, as I say that, Oftentimes, in both the Old and the New Testament, those who are poor will trust in God more readily than the wealthy because that's all they have. And this is why Jesus will say later in Matthew 19, 23, oh, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they have riches to trust in. 
But I want you to know that the root meaning is not about your financial status, but about being broken before God. You can be the poorest person on the planet, not even having two nickels to rub together, but you can be arrogant against God and therefore not be poor in spirit. Or you can be the wealthiest person on the planet, and you can literally burn $100 bills in your fireplace to keep yourself warm. But if you realize that you're a sinner and you need the grace of God, you're poor in spirit. It's not a financial issue. Now, why does Jesus begin with this one? Well, notice those who realize their need for a Savior, what theirs, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And again, notice accentuated is this present tense verse. Those who know that they need the Savior are those who are the possessors of the kingdom. And so beginning with this beatitude and following through all of the other ones, the point is Jesus Christ is showing what those believers of his must look like, how they must think, and how they must act. Now, as we continue on, Jesus explains how it is that those who belong to the kingdom and to him are going to suffer here and now. Notice what he says, verses 4 through 6. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I want you to notice here in this second beatitude, in verse 4, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think this beatitude really shows us the absurdity of rendering blessed, rendering it happy. Why? Because then you'd be saying happy are those who mourn. Well, that would be an oxymoron. So it's certainly more than happy, isn't it? Now, let's define mourning. What does it mean to mourn? I think what's envisioned here is not a personal bereavement because of a lost loved one or something. That certainly causes people to mourn. But what's being envisioned here is from the Old Testament, the people of Israel would mourn because it seemed that the promises of God were stymied. Israel was sacked. Jerusalem is destroyed by the Babylonians. They're brought into captivity. And all of the promises of God seem to be in jeopardy. And the people of God are downtrodden. The people of God are mocked, ridiculed, spit upon. And so they mourn. And so it is with the people of God today. We are not the power brokers of this world. We are not the ones who are running the show. We're downtrodden, mocked, and ridiculed because of the sake of Christ. And so we mourn. Now, I want you to see that this is the definition of mourning. Turn your Bibles back again. I hope you mark the page. Isaiah 61. Let's read verses 2 through 3. Isaiah 61. Let's start in verse 2. We'll read that first. So Isaiah 61 Verse 2. Now, one thing I want to mention is when Jesus is in his hometown synagogue, he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, but he stops halfway through verse 2. Let me show you where he stopped. Jesus continued the quote, he said, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. That's as far as Jesus read in his hometown synagogue. Do you know why? Because everything that he had read thus far to that point was about the first coming. The rest of it is going to be about the second coming. Notice as he continues, it's about the second coming. It says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. 
So do you notice the vengeance of God doesn't come at his first coming, that comes at his second coming, but also the comfort to those who mourn. The comfort doesn't come now in this age. It comes at the second coming of Christ. That's when the comfort comes. In fact, read on in verse 3. He says, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Brothers and sisters, the great promise is that because you mourn as the downtrodden and persecuted of Christ, one day in his kingdom, you're going to be comforted. Now, let's get to the third beatitude here. We see this in verse 5. Notice he says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, notice here the term gentle. The better rendering of that is probably meek, praes. It's the meek. The meek are the ones who shall inherit the earth. Now, the meek here are not the weak, but rather they are believers who have the scruples so that they are not tyrants in this world, like the man who throws his own friend under the bus just to get the promotion at work. A good example of the opposite of meek would be Vladimir Putin, the tyrant. The tyrants of this world, we are not. Why? Because we trust in the promises of God and we don't act, therefore, in unethical ways. That's the idea of the meek. But I want you to see again how this beatitude is rooted in the Old Testament. Turn your Bibles again back to the Old Testament, Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verses 10 through 11. Now, the reason I want you to turn there is you're going to see almost verbatim the same promise given by David. Now, King David here, turn about your Bibles again, Psalm 37, 10 through 11. David here is letting fellow believers know that they should not be disturbed by the prosperity of the wicked. That even though the wicked men who ridicule and mock and humiliate them, the the reason they seem to prosper, that seems to be a conundrum to the believer. He says, don't let that bother you. They won't be forever. Notice Psalm 37, verse 10. He says, yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. And you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. Now, notice the contrast, verse 11. But the humble, literally the anavim here, the meek, will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The abundant prosperity literally is shalom. They'll have abundant peace. So the humble or the meek are going to be the ones who end up inheriting the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom doesn't belong to the Vladimir Putins. It doesn't belong to the power brokers of this age. It belongs to those who trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't seem that way now. But when Christ returns, there's going to be the great reversal. That's what we have to know. Now, notice here in verse 6, we come to the fourth beatitude. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, the hunger and thirst, that's a metaphor for deeply desiring. So the idea is that the true believer is one who deeply desires the righteousness of God. Now, when we talk about righteousness, are we referring to a righteousness that comes from God? That is the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to our account 
the moment we believe? Or is it the righteousness in which we desire to live pleasing lives out of gratitude to Christ for what he has done? Yes, it's both because both are connected together. The first is primary, but the second necessarily follows. And so the idea is that we are the ones as believers who hunger most deeply for this righteousness. The rest of the world has other hungers. They're hungering for the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. They're lusting for the sinful pleasures here and now. That's where their desire is, but not for us. For us who trust and thirst for his righteousness, notice he says that we will be satisfied. Notice that term in blue, satisfied. It comes from cortazo. You're going to see that come up again. When we get to Matthew chapter 14, Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is going to feed the 5,000, then he's going to feed the 4,000 respectively. And when he feeds them after they're eating, they eat all the bread, it says that they were satisfied. Same term cortazo. And the implication is one day in the kingdom, the Messiah, because he's the bread of life, If you come to him, you're not going to be just satisfied for a short period of time. You're going to be eternally satisfied. Do you remember the 1960s, the Rolling Stones? By the way, when I was a a youthful man, I liked the Rolling Stones. If you hear Start Me Up, you'll see me do a little jig to that. Well, in the 1960s, the Rolling Stones had a song that was entitled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And so it is with the unbelieving world. Their satisfaction is only temporary and fleeting. Not so those who belong to Christ. Your satisfaction is going to be forever. That's what you have to know and you have to trust that he will bring that kind of redemption about. Now, I want you to see again that this idea in this last beatitude in verse 6 that we're looking on the screen is rooted in the Old Testament again. Here in Psalm 17, verse 15, David is talking about how he was satisfied with the righteousness of God while the unbelievers around him were seeking the sinful pleasures of this world. Notice Psalm 17, 15, David says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, talking about God. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Does everyone see the connection that Jesus is making? The righteousness, righteousness, satisfied satisfied. Yes, Jesus is taking many of the Beatitudes right from the Old Testament. Dear brothers and sisters, it has always been the promise for the people of God that our satisfaction will never come here and now. It'll come eternally in the kingdom. Now we come to the last four Beatitudes and we come to the end end of this inclusio. Let's look at the fifth Beatitude first. Verses 7 through 10, let's read it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Dear ones, notice here this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see that not just here, this idea of how incongruous it is for the believer to receive mercy and not yet give it. But we're also going to see that same theme in the next chapter, in Matthew chapter 6. That's where Jesus says, if you forgive the transgressions of others, 
your heavenly father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive the transgressions of others, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. Now, as Jesus teaches both what we see here and also later in Matthew 6, is he teaching a works-based righteousness? That we have to first do something in order to receive the forgiveness that comes from the Lord? No. What he's pointing out again is if we interpret the Sermon on the Mount correctly, is that those who truly belong to him are going to be those who forgive. Because it is absolutely incongruous, it is absolutely hypocritical for those who have been forgiven everything by the Holy One of Israel not to forgive others. And so if you're one who never forgives, it's really evidence that you either don't understand the significance of your forgiveness or you have never been forgiven yourself ultimately by God. That's the significance of what he is saying. Now, let's get to the sixth beatitude. Notice he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We have to know that not one single person is born into this world pure in heart before God. In thought, word, and deed, we are born rebels against him. And so what happens at conversion is God does a heart transplant, where by the Spirit, he not only brings us to faith in Christ, but he starts giving us new desires, and he cleanses us from the inside out. And what you have to realize is notice the term heart. The Jews use that in a metaphorical way. We do the same thing. We know the heart is the organ that pumps blood, but we'll say, hey, that football team, they played with a lot of heart. We use it in a metaphorical way. The Jews knew that the heart was the organ that pumped blood, but they would use it as a metaphor for the center of one's thought life. So the center of your thought life, your will, your emotions, your intellect was your heart. That's the idea. And so at conversion, you have a change of mind and you start thinking differently. And this is why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed. Literally have a metamorphosis. Go from the ugly caterpillar to the butterfly by the renewing of your mind. How does that occur? By the work of the Spirit who gives us the Scriptures. And as you encounter the Scriptures, you start thinking differently than the rest of the world. And therefore, you end up developing a pure heart that thinks about the promises rather than the fleeting pleasures of sin. And again, those who belong to Christ are characterized by that. That's who they look like and what they look like. Okay, now let's get on to the next one, the seventh beatitude. Notice he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I want to talk about this idea of being a son of God. But first of all, let's talk about the idea of being the peacemaker. What is a peacemaker? Well, it certainly isn't just a person who has a peaceful disposition, But later we're going to see it's a person who wants to be reconciled to God and wants to be reconciled to fellow man. Now, what's very interesting is later on in this very chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to qualify that statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Do you know that the Jews misunderstood that as meaning that they had to exact revenge for an offense? But God designed what's called the lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, to limit the amount of revenge that you could take. If someone chipped your tooth, you couldn't just chop off their leg. 
No, it was only an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But the Jews misunderstand that. They say, well, no, it means we have to get revenge. Jesus has to change their thinking to say, no, you're going to be a peacemaker. You're going to be one who seeks to have mercy. And so that's the idea that we see in the scriptures is that you and I who have been reconciled to God are also those who want to be reconciled to man. Now, being that you and I are called to be a peacemaker, does that mean that the Bible teaches pacifism? No. There are times that we will have to stand up against the evildoer. A great way to define what Jesus here means by the peacemaker is don't turn to it, but jot it down, Romans 12, 18. That's where Paul says this. This is a great definition of the peacemaker. Romans 12, 18, Paul says, if possible... So far as it depends on you, the believer, be at peace with all men. Notice he says, as far as it depends on you. There are times where we can't be at peace with the world. They will say, Christ is not the only way. There are many ways of salvation. I saw that on Oprah Winfrey. Oprah said, millions of people listening. She has all the power, all the money. She says, no, there's not just one way. There was a lowly Christian lady that said, no, there is only one way. She couldn't keep the peace there. She had to confess Christ. There are times the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. And the same is true for us. But as much as it depends on us, we are not the warmongers, but we are those who seek reconciliation between God and man. That's the idea. Now, let's come to our eighth and final beatitude. Blessed are those who who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, here's the refrain, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now notice here, those who are blessed because they are persecuted means that you and I are not promised our best life here and now. The greatest temptation facing every believer is that you and I would fear man rather than fearing God. Why? Because you end up seeking to I think, make happy and to serve the one that you ultimately fear. If you fear man, you'll serve man. But if you fear God, you'll serve God. And that's why the very beginning of wisdom, according to Solomon, Proverbs 1-7, is the fear of the Lord. That's why later in Matthew 10-28, Jesus will say, Do not fear man who can destroy the body but fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If you and I start fearing man, what they think, what they can do, we'll serve them and we'll live for them in the fleeting pleasures of this world. But if we fear God, we're concerned about his judgment, his assessment, and want his kingdom, we'll live for him. And so Jesus, again, is saying, notice the present tense verb, that those who have such an attitude, theirs is currently the kingdom of heaven. Dear ones, the followers of Jesus Christ are willing to be humiliated and shamed here and now for the sake of the glorious kingdom. So glorious is the coming promised kingdom that no price paid here is too much. No amount of humiliation, mocking or ridicule is too much for the sake of the kingdom. And so brothers and sisters, as we look at these words here in the Mount of Beatitudes, Jesus is reminding all of us what true kingdom citizens that belong to him really look like. It's not earn your salvation by doing these things, but rather those who have been saved 
will look like this. Now, let me come to three points of application with you this morning. The first is that we must know that no unbeliever can please God through their good works. What I want to do is dispel the notion that somehow the Sermon on the Mount is simply pull yourself up by your bootstraps, start doing those things, and you'll create a utopia here, and you'll be right with God. No, that's a misreading of the Sermon on the Mount. That is not what it's saying. So number two goes with that. We should know that all believers are saved by faith unto good works, which must surely follow. Yes, we are saved unto good works, not by them. So the Sermon on the Mount is not do this in order to be saved, but rather those who are saved will do this. That's the idea. And if we don't see that, we're not going to ever interpret the Sermon on the Mount correctly. Now, number three, we must trust that God will vindicate us in the future kingdom. If we don't believe that, we will live for all we can and get here and now in this world rather than in the kingdom. Okay, so let's begin with number one. One thing that I think we must avoid in reading the Sermon on the Mount is that we can simply do these things and work harder, and therefore we will enter the kingdom by our works. It goes like this. There's always going to be some liberal theologian, some liberal pastor in the 20th, the 21st century who will put the Sermon on the Mount up to his congregation and he will beat them over the head with it day after day. And the idea is if they would just do those things, they're going to create a world that's worth living in. That's the message in a lot of liberal congregations. That is not what Jesus is teaching. No, we have to know that human beings born in this world, sinners, born in Adam, can do nothing pleasing to God. And if we don't know that, we're going to be on the wrong foot, and we'll start approaching salvation by works. One of the passages that very succinctly tells us that no human being can do good works left to their own devices is found in Isaiah 64, 6. Here's what Isaiah said. He said, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. I want you to see here in red where it says all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Literally, it's a menstrual rag. That's what it is. And I want you to think about what Isaiah is saying. Even the greatest deed that we have done in our unregenerate state that we would boast in, saying, God, surely you must accept this, is giving him this soiled garment telling the Holy One of Israel, you must accept this soiled garment on my behalf. Do you think he's going to do it? Would an earthly king do that? Here's a soiled garment of mine. You have to receive that as payment. No, an earthly king wouldn't receive it, nor is the Holy One of Israel. In fact, even our righteous deeds in the unregenerate state are considered sinful. In fact, notice what does sin lead to? Notice he says the iniquities like the wind take us away. Sin leads to death. That's what he means by being taken away. Death is not annihilation. It's not. It's often thought that way in our culture, but death is not annihilation. Death is separation from God. So he's saying that our iniquities separated us from God. The first death is, yes, a physical separation of body and soul, But the second and eternal death is separation from God in a lake of fire. And those who are unbelievers can do nothing 
even in the best works, to please God. We have to know that. So then why approach the Sermon on the Mount as an unbeliever thinking, I'll just start doing these things and therefore I'll satisfy God. No, all you're going to be offering are soiled garments to God. Garments that he will not receive and that will separate you from him forever. Now, Paul the Apostle succinctly states the same condition of the unregenerate in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul divides every person on the planet into two camps. You're either those who are in the spirit or those who are in the flesh. Every person is in one of those two camps. Those who are believers in Christ are in the spirit. The spirit brought them to faith and brought them to belong to Christ. And the spirit enables them to do things that are pleasing to Christ. But those who are in the flesh can do nothing but give soiled garments. They're unbelievers. That's the idea. And so this is what Paul says, Romans 8, 8. He says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You know, I look at our culture today, and I see so many people dividing over the dumbest things. You, you see all these acronyms, LGBTQ, you know, CIA, FBI, IRS, whatever the acronyms are out there. You got to put on KP, and everyone has an acronym. You're going to be dividing for this and for that. At the end of the day, you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. And if you're in the flesh, you can't do anything to please God. So then why look at the Sermon on the Mount as if you're somehow going to just try harder or do more? It's not going to work out. Those who are in the flesh can do nothing pleasing to God, including the things that Christ commands. You won't be able to do it. You'll fail and you come short of his glory. Now, I want to show you that indeed... If that is true, that we can't justify ourselves through doing the works of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to know that those who have come to Christ will do the things on the Sermon on the Mount. We must do them. Why? Because we're called to do them, and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do them. So these aren't superfluous words, a wish list that Christ thinks that maybe someone someday might be able to do. No, these are the things that will characterize the people of God by the power of his Spirit. But we have to see the relationship between faith and works. If we don't get the faith first, the works will never follow. And a passage that succinctly shows us this is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Uh, By the way, it's a great passage uh, that Bob taught some years ago to us, just about two years ago, as he was leading us through Ephesians. Let's read it here together. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, I want to begin with just verses 8 through 9. Let's define these first. Notice, how are we saved? Let's point to that. Being saved means justified before God. Well, it's by grace through faith. Does everyone see that? That's how we're justified. Now, I want you to notice this demonstrative pronoun. Notice the that. What is the that referring back to? Well, that refers back to the salvation by grace through faith. The implication is that even that faith is not from ourselves. It is a gift of God. So at the end of the day, I can't say, hey, you know what? I'm really a bright guy. I decided to come to faith in Christ, but my dopey neighbor... He's just not that bright or she, they won't come to Christ. 
No, that's not how we came to Christ. It was a gift of God. It was purely a gift. So the very beginning of our salvation is not synergistic where you have man meeting God. It is monergistic in which God alone saves. Purely by his grace, by bringing dead sinners to life and giving us faith. In the son where we have the forgiveness of sins. That's how it all starts. Now in verse 10, we come to this. He says, for we, that is believers now. And again, assumed as we're saved by grace through faith. For we are his workmanship, that's God's. Notice in blue, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Stop there. That's what we call a dative of sphere. It means that the good works that we end up doing are in the camp of Christ. If you're in his camp, you'll end up doing good works. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, hey, if you're in my camp, you're going to start doing these things. If you're in my camp, you're going to have this attitude. If you're in my camp, you're going to look like this. It's, so it's Ephesians 2.10, Sermon on the Mount. It's not Ephesians 2.8 through 9. Assumed is that you're a... Remember, he's speaking to the disciples, not the unbelievers. Are you with me? Now, let me illustrate the relationship between faith and works again through an analogy. Some years ago, I did a Bible study for teenagers. And I don't know if this helped them. I never got a lot of feedback from them. But I gave them the analogy, and I've given it to you several times, but we always have new people, so let me try it again. My analogy is think of our salvation like a car. What is it that created or drives your salvation of the the car? It's the engine, which is your faith. It's the engine of your salvation, saving faith. But if your engine is on your saving faith, it must necessarily produce exhaust. The exhaust are works. The idea is if you never have any exhaust works, it's because your engine isn't running faith. Are you with me? The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is checking our exhaust. This is the kind of exhaust you're going to have. Because if you don't have that kind of exhaust... You don't have an engine that's running. That's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The kind of exhaust that you and I must produce if our saving engine is on. That's how I think we should understand the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let's come to our final point here. And that is how every believer in Jesus Christ must live for the king and his kingdom by believing the best is yet to come, by believing we will one day be vindicated. I want you to see here what Paul says in Romans 8.18. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, I want you to think about this in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over, those who are blessed are those who are willing to suffer now to be rewarded later. And here Paul is telling us in red, that there really are sufferings in the present time. He's not trying to buffalo us and say, oh, everything will go smoothly, wink, wink, wink. No, he's giving it to us straight. We're going to have sufferings now. The idea is, though, that they're not to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, the glory that we're heading for in the resurrection, in the kingdom of Christ, is so stupendous 
it's worth suffering now. It's worth being mocked now. It's worth being ridiculed now because the kingdom is so spectacular. In fact, later in the book of Matthew, we're going to be coming to this. This is the end part of the Olivet Discourse. Jesus here is talking about, remember the parable of the talents? By the way, the talent is a large sum of money. It's not just, hey, I was given the gift of being able to throw a baseball well. and It's not that kind of talent. The talent was more than likely uh, silver rather than gold, I think. So in this particular man's case, Jesus is talking about a man who had five talents. He was given a lot. And then the Lord was tearing. He was away. And the idea is that this man did the things that he was to do because he really belonged to the Lord. And therefore, he is going to be rewarded. Notice it says, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. Now, stop there. Why is he faithful? Is it because he pulled himself up by his bootstraps and did everything that Jesus commanded? No, it's because he believed, and by the power of the Spirit in his life, he did the things that Christ commanded. And therefore, what's the result? He says, you are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The greatest thing that we will ever hear in the history of the planet is, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then all of the ridicule, all of the mocking, all of the mourning, and all of the hurt, it'll be all worthwhile. Because the kingdom is forever. Brothers and sisters, as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount today, you and I were not told how we are to be justified with, with God. What we were given was a blueprint of what the justified look like. What those who are in Christ's kingdom look like and how we are called to think and act. And by God's grace, let us be those who do these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word that you give us the ways that you've called us to live. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount that you've called us blessed even though that we mourn even though we're persecuted now. And I do pray for my dear brothers and sisters in the trying times and the difficulties of this age that you would, by your spirit, give us the perseverance that belongs to those who belong to you. Heavenly Father, I do pray that in the weeks and months ahead, you would give us ample opportunity and boldness to share your gospel with those who are lost, whether they be our relatives or friends or coworkers. We pray, Heavenly Father, you'd prepare hearts before us so that others may know you by faith and enter into the good works that you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.